Uh, I want to try to give you a gift, if I can, this week, a gift that uh, I trust will uh, maybe be the best or one of the best gifts you've ever received in your life. I want to give you the gift of the most dramatic, powerful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of Holy Scripture. And that picture is found in Isaiah 53. So open your Bible to Isaiah 53. And I want us to very thoughtfully and carefully work our way up to and through this incredible chapter. To set it in your mind, I want you to listen as I read. And I'll begin reading at chapter 52, verse 13. God is speaking at the outset of this text. He gives the introduction in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52, and then He gives the conclusion at the end of chapter 53. So hear from the Lord Himself. Behold, My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people 
to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now some introductory comments. The greatest proof of the truth of the Bible, the greatest proof of the truth of the Bible comes from the Bible itself. It has its own glory. The Old Testament tells us what will happen, and the New Testament tells us exactly how it happened. The Old Testament makes precise prophecies, and the New Testament records the precise fulfillment. This particular chapter stands out as one of those prophetic chapters which is to the detail fulfilled in the New Testament and through to the end of the age. You heard Abner say in that little video clip that the Bible is complex and deep and profound, and indeed it is. What you have in what I read you is a stunning, complex, detailed history of the Lord Jesus Christ written 700 years before He came. Some have called it the fifth gospel. I call it the first gospel. Matthew is the second. It is not a prophecy of Jesus. It is the gospel declared by a people yet to come. Luther said every Christian should know this chapter by memory and be ready to recite it. Kylan Dalich, historic commentators back in 1866, wrote, it looks as if it had been written at the foot of Golgotha. Another commentator said, many an Israelite has had this chapter melt his heart. It has been said that this is the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest that Old Testament prophecy outstripping itself has achieved. The roots of the Christian gospel are here, and much 
of the vocabulary for our Christian speech is here. This chapter has supplied more texts to gospel preachers than any other Old Testament portion. It contains the most important truth in the world. It is the clearest, fullest, richest explanation of the meaning of the death of Christ in the entire Bible. That includes the New Testament. It is the most complete, the most profound, the most unsearchable, the most bottomless, the most exalted explanation of the cross and the substitutionary, vicarious, sacrificial death of the Savior in all the Bible. Isaiah is the greatest of Old Testament prophets. He here provides for us the highest form and highest quality of Hebrew poetry in existence. Let me dig down a little bit. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah as there are 66 books in the Bible. Those chapters are divided into two parts, chapters 1 through 39 and chapter 40 through 66. That's how the Bible is divided. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about judgment, and the last 27 books of Isaiah are all about salvation. And so is the Old Testament about judgment and the New Testament about salvation. In the final 27 chapters of Isaiah from 40 through 66, there are three sets of nine chapters. The first nine present salvation from Babylonian captivity. The second nine, salvation from sin. The third nine, salvation from the curse. In the middle nine, salvation from sin, the middle chapter is chapter 53, and the middle verses of the middle chapter in the middle nine are, He was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. It's an amazing work that the Spirit of God has done. Words collapse under the weight of this section. It begins the way the New Testament begins. If you start, for example, with the Gospel of Mark, you know that the record of the Gospel by Mark begins with John the Baptist. That's how the second section of Isaiah begins in chapter 40. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. That's John the Baptist. It begins then where the New Testament begins with the arrival of the forerunner, and it ends where the New Testament ends. The New Testament ends with the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, and that's how Isaiah ends, chapter 65 and 66. This chapter takes on scope that is staggering. It starts the very chapter I read to you, and 
starts from our Lord's, with our Lord's eternal relationship to His Father in the exalted state of glory, it progresses down to the humiliation of the incarnation through the rejection, all the way to the execution, out the other side of the empty tomb, having accomplished justification, and then the ascension, and then the intercession, and then the final exaltation. All of that is in what I read. There's little wonder that virtually every line of this chapter is found in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Timothy, Titus, Hebrew, 1 Peter, 1 John, all make reference back to Isaiah 53. If the New Testament were lost, and we only had the story of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 53 would be a complete explanation of its meaning. It is enough gospel truth to save sinners. Isaiah was given the privilege of seeing deeper into the profound depths of Calvary than anyone had ever known. 700 years before it happened. And by the way, when Isaiah 53 was written, this was new to the Jews. It was new revelation. They had heard a lot about Messiah. They uh, had some hints at His sacrifice. His sacrifice was pictured, of course, in the sacrificial system. And the fact that there was no final sacrifice and they had to keep offering sacrifices every morning and every evening throughout all the years was an indication that no true sacrifice had ever yet been rendered. Here, however, is more than a veiled reference, more than a hint, more than some kind of type or picture or analogy. Here is the clear revelation of the work of the Savior. He is identified by Isaiah as the servant, the Ebed, the slave of Jehovah. He is God's slave. There are four slave songs or servant songs in Isaiah chapter 42, 49, and 53. In chapter 53, he is the suffering servant of Jehovah. In fact, so clear here is this presentation related to Jesus Christ that it has been called the torture chamber of the rabbis. Some have identified it as the guilty conscience of the Jews. Nowhere, by the way, does the servant speak, but it is all about him. In the beginning and the end, God speaks about Him. In the middle, a group of people speak about Him. It then moves from the announcement of God to the affirmation of God over the confession of the people. As much as any text 
in all Holy Scripture, this one answers, this is important, the most crucial, significant, essential, vital, weighty, paramount question that can ever be asked and answered. There is a question that is more important than all other questions combined, and it has nothing to do with uh, success, education, morality, philosophy, sociology, politics, personal fulfillment, health, wealth, kind of things that occupy people. This answers the question that transcends all other questions and all other categories. Yet, this most critical of all questions is a non-existent question for the mass of humanity. And what is the most important and the most avoided question? It is this, how can a person become acceptable to God so as to escape hell and enter heaven? That is the question. And that is the question that religion must answer correctly, or it is a false and damning religion. I'll say it again. How can a person become acceptable to God so as to escape hell and enter heaven? That is the question of all questions. People don't ask that question. Even the Jews don't ask that question. Last time I checked, about 11% of contemporary Jews believe the Old Testament. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know Isaiah 53. They're not interested because, and here's the rub, they don't think they need a Savior. They don't need a sacrifice for sin. Because, like their forefathers in the time of Jesus and further back, they see themselves as secure with God because they are the children of Abraham. Isaiah's purpose is to tell them the truth about themselves. Go back to chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reign of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers, are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. 
unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Then God says in verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. There is salvation, but you have to recognize your sinfulness. This is still the issue. The difference between Jews and true Christians, Jews don't need a Savior. They don't need a Savior. They don't need a Savior to save them from divine judgment, from God's wrath, from hell. When the Messiah came, all they expected Him to be was a political military deliverer. They don't need a Savior. We need a Savior. The Jews fail to recognize what Isaiah just recorded as the very words of God. The fact of their utter sinfulness. So the question to ask a Jew when you evangelize or when you give your testimony is this. Do you personally recognize your sin and your alienation from God and the fact that you are facing divine judgment? And do you personally need a Savior to take your place, bear your punishment so that you can be forgiven? That's the question. And that, by the way, is the primary issue of all human existence. Do you need a Savior? The answer, of course, is yes. But it seems to be a rare thing for people to admit. If you're talking to Jewish people, you can do what um, Philip did in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. You can take him to Isaiah 53. He was a proselyte to Judaism. Took him to Isaiah 53 and preached Jesus. The best place in the Old Testament from which to preach Jesus, His deity, His incarnation, His life, His rejection, His death, His resurrection, His intercession, His exaltation is Isaiah 53. Now, as I said, this is about the Lord Jesus. He fulfilled every detail of it. But listen to what I say carefully. This section is not primarily a prophecy concerning the event 
of the arrival of the Messiah. It is not primarily a prophecy of the incarnation, of the crucifixion, of the resurrection. It's not primarily a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Well, look at the verbs. Look down at verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up. He has no form. He was despised. He was despised again in verse 3. He bore. He carried. He was smitten. He was pierced. He was crushed. Those are all past tense. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. That's not prophecy. Why doesn't the prophet say, who will believe our message? Who will accept the arm of the Lord being revealed? Why doesn't the prophet say, he will be despised and forsaken of men? Why doesn't he say, he, he will bear our griefs? He will carry our sorrows. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Why past tense verbs? Here's the amazing answer. This is a prophecy of a future time when the nation Israel looks back. This is what Zechariah said in Zechariah 12.10, they will look on Him whom they pierced and mourn for Him as an only son. And when that day comes that the nation Israel looks back at Christ and mourns over His death, this will be their confession. We didn't believe it. We weren't impressed with Him. But He was bearing our griefs. This is a prophecy of the future salvation of Israel. And this is the confession they will make. This goes right through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ to that future day that is predicted in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, that is affirmed in Romans 11, so all Israel will be saved. This is the day when they look on the one they've pierced as a nation and they declare their confession of faith in Him. It's an incredible passage. Now, at least we can get started a little bit with it this morning. So let's look first of all at chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. As I told you, in the beginning, God speaks. He introduces the career of the servant of Jehovah. And then he gives at the end a final commentary in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 53. There are five stanzas in this section of Scripture uh, with escalating power, I might say. Uh, they are all startling. I like that word, so we're going to use that word uh, to start with, the startling servant. Let's call it that and look at the three verses at the end of chapter 52. The startling servant. God Himself is speaking. He introduces 
in the first person the shocking, stunning, startling career of the Messiah, the Ebed, the slave of Jehovah. First, verse 13, an astonishing revelation. Behold, there's the divine astonishment. Behold, my slave will prosper. To uh, identify the Messiah as the servant or the slave of God is to say that he will do God's will. Here is the one Israelite whom God will send and God will anoint and who will do His will. Here is the one Israelite in whom God will effect the redemption of His people. Behold my servant. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, Israel has been called the Ebed of Jehovah, the servant of God. They have been rebellious and sinful. They have been set aside and set for judgment, the Babylonian captivity. Contrary to them, look, here is a servant of Jehovah on a divine mission, and he will prosper. You remember that Jesus said in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. John 8.29, I always do the things that please Him. My servant will prosper. The Hebrews actually will act intelligently or act wisely, that is to say, be effective or be successful. He will accomplish my purpose. Has the idea of kind of an escalating or increasing success. It's never used in application to any kind of success that doesn't require effort. It is the kind of success that comes as a result of constant wise action. That is to say, He will not fail. And of course, we hear the words of Jesus echoing in John 17, 4, I have finished the work you gave me to do. This slave of Jehovah will succeed in doing the will of God. Now just who is this slave of Jehovah? Go back to verse 13 and listen to this. He is identified as the one who will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That might sound redundant to you. High, lifted up, greatly exalted. Isn't that saying exactly the same thing three times? No. These are escalating statements like comparatives and superlatives. It is to say in the Hebrew high, higher, highest. High in His resurrection. Higher in His ascension. Highest in His coronation. The combination of these verbs is used only in one other place in Isaiah. That's in chapter 6 where we see God sitting on the throne high and lifted up. Oh, so here is one who is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And in chapter 6 is one who is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And in chapter 6, it is clearly God. And so here it must be God also. 
But we don't stop there because in the 12th chapter of John, there's a most, most important and amazing statement. Listen to verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Speaking of Christ. John says that in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah was writing about Christ. It was Christ in chapter 6. It's Christ here. If it's God in chapter 6 and Christ, then God is in Christ. The astonishing revelation of the servant is this. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is God Himself. The astonishing nature of the servant. He is God. Astonishing. That's an astonishing revelation. Followed immediately in the words of God by an astonishing humiliation. Look at verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than sons of men. I think this refers to the Messiah, to, to the servant, but they're not astonished by his exaltation. Even by his deity, they're astonished by his humiliation. It's interesting to, to think about the word astonished. It has kind of a negative connotation. It, it means literally to be desolate, to be waste. And that, that's sort of the idea that this is a reality that throws you into a condition of being petrified, numbed, or paralyzed. It is that kind of shock. And the shock is that the one who is God, the high and lifted up and exalted God, is humbled to such a low degree that his appearance is marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. He is marred in face, and he is marred in form. His face is disfigured. His body is distorted. So as literally to be away from men or out beyond men. That's what the idea of more than any man, more than the sons of man. It is beyond being human. It's as if he was placed outside of what is human. His face, his body, so totally disfigured, so totally distorted, so as literally to be distorted beyond all normal human recognition. What, what could do that to him? Some early views of Jesus saw him as ugly. The idea would be that he was ugly that he was repulsive as a human being as he walked on the earth. That can't be true. He, he was human, 
but his body was sinless. He had to be the most perfect human creature ever to walk on the earth. Beautiful in every feature, not in any way deformed. But that's not the point. This looks at something that's going to happen to him as God that is going to literally disfigure, mutilate, and distort him. Psalm 22 saw this disfiguring. Even back in the 50th chapter of Isaiah, I think it is, verse uh, 5, he says, the Lord has opened my ear. That's an act that an owner did to a slave to label him as his own. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. The book of Hebrews says that he was a faithful servant marked in the ear. And then it says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Now, that's just one look at what happened on the cross. Psalm 22 describes further distortion. He was scourged. He was kept from sleep. A weariness that we can't even comprehend, crowned with thorns, slapped, punched, spit on, tortured, the agonies distorting his body and his face. This is the astonishment of contempt, by the way. People are just shocked at this humiliation. He is a repulsive object not to be desired. That's not how the story ends. The introduction by God continues into verse 15. But He will startle, I think is the best in, in, translation, He will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of Him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Some have translated it sprinkle as if he will cleanse many nations, but nations aren't cleansed. Individuals are. It is better to see this term yaza as a verb that can mean to, uh, to spring up, to kind of spurt up. It has the idea of causing people to spring up or jump up by an excess of emotion. So it's kind of metaphoric for people being shocked or startled. Nations can't be cleansed, but whole nations are going to be startled. We know that from Psalm 2, don't we? That when the Messiah comes at the end of history to set up His kingdom, it says that, the nations are going to be in an uproar. The kings of the earth are going to take their stand. The rulers are counseled together against the Lord, against His anointed, and say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord scoffs at them. And then God promises, ask of me, my son, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, 
Worship the Son with reverence. Worship the Lord, rather, with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage or kiss the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. When He comes back, He comes back in fury and in judgment. And we see that unfolded in the book of Revelation. This is a stunning final revelation of Christ. It will cause, verse 15, kings to shut their mouths on account of Him. They will be speechless. Can you imagine a ruler who is speechless? The involuntary effect of the shock and extreme amazement. They're going to see things they never imagined. They're going to experience things they would never understand. There, in a brief little microcosm, is the career of the Messiah. He is God. He is high, lifted up, and exalted as God in chapter 6 is described. But God in chapter 6 is stated to be in the New Testament by our Lord Jesus, the Son. And so it is the Son who is God, who is Yahweh. He is high and exalted. Then in the next scene, He is humiliated. That's the incarnation. And in the final scene, He is exalted again over all rulers of the world. It's an incredible picture as God introduces His servant. Now let's come to chapter 53 for a few minutes. This is stirring. So we saw the startling servant. That's his whole career. Startling that the Messiah will be God. Startling that he will be humiliated so that he is marred more than any man. Startling that he will be exalted above all the rulers and nations of the world. But I want you to notice as we come to 53, the scorned servant. The scorned servant. God isn't speaking anymore. These are plural verbs. It's a group of people. We, our, us. And as I told you, it is Israel. It is Israel in the future when by the power of the Holy Spirit they look back on Jesus and see the truth. The scorned servant. Verse 1, this is what they're going to say. And this is what, in essence, any penitent sinner any time says. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What do you mean, who has believed our message? The revelation of the servant. The revelation of Messiah. The Old Testament. The Gospel. Our message, not to the message we gave, but the message that was given to us through the prophecies and the preaching concerning the Messiah by prophets and apostles and John the Baptist and Jesus and New Testament writers. The message. Who believed the message given to us? Answer, none of us. We didn't believe it. 
And that goes not only for the time that our Lord was on earth, but through all of human history. Until the hour of Israel's salvation, they're going to look back and say, we have never believed it. Oh, there are some Jews, there is a remnant, but, but the nation has never believed it. They didn't believe the prophets. They didn't believe John the Baptist. They didn't believe Jesus. They didn't believe the apostles. They don't believe the preachers since then. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is divine power. Messiah was the arm of the Lord on earth, the power of God. And His gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. But very few responded. He came unto His own, and His own, what? Received Him not. Well, why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe? Because they didn't need a Savior. Paul says in Romans 10, they were very busy going about to establish their own righteousness. They didn't believe. They didn't need a Savior. They were the children of Abraham. They were special in God's eyes. Catastrophic unbelief has marked Israel. Catastrophic unbelief because of proud self-righteousness and no recognition of what was so clearly unfolded in chapter 1, their utter sinfulness. But someday, they're going to say, we didn't believe the message. We haven't believed it through history. We haven't believed it. And when the arm of the Lord was revealed, when the Messiah came in full power, we didn't receive Him. Isaiah 53 has no role to play in Jewish thinking. I just finished reading a book called Operation Thunderbolt. It's a credible chronicle of the Entebbe raid that occurred some years ago when the Israelis went in to a hijacked airplane in Uganda under the rule of Idi Amin and rescued a mass of people. The book is, is rich with all that's good and noble and sacrificial about Israel. There's absolutely nothing in it. And it traces the career of Netanyahu and his brother Jonathan who was killed in the Entebbe raid who was heroic. It looks at all the heroes who were a part of the, the greatest acts of heroism in Israel. There is no regard in that entire book to anything related to spiritual salvation. They are a rebellious house, Ezekiel said. Jesus came and said, we played and you wouldn't dance. The preaching of the gospel has not produced saving faith. The gospel has been preached to Israel. It's being preached now. 
But the same response there occurs in the Gentile world, the preaching of the cross is to those that perish foolishness. However, in the future, this will be changed by God. They will be purged of the rebels, according to Ezekiel 36, and then the nation will be saved. And they will look on Him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Him as the only Son, and all Israel will be saved. From their viewpoint, why did they reject Jesus? His deity was manifest. It was manifest, miracle after miracle after miracle on a daily basis. No one ever taught like Him. No one ever spoke like Him. No one did what He did. Why? Why did they and why have they rejected Him? Three reasons are given by Isaiah here. Let's look at it. Verse 2. He grew up before Him, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. simple way to say that is he, he had a contemptible origin. He grew up. That looks at the beginning of Messiah's life. Before Him, meaning in the full view of God, God saw every moment of His life as He grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. But he grew up in their eyes as a tender shoot, or better said, a sucker branch, literally. They looked at Jesus and they said, unnecessary, unimpressive, irrelevant, a sucker branch, yannick, small, insignificant, random. Sucker branches pop up without cultivation. They're not planted, they're not cared for, and they're cut off because they unnecessarily suck life. Sucker branch, irrelevant, insignificant, unimportant. He came from an insignificant family. He came from an insignificant town. He was born, of all things, in an insignificant stable, surrounded by the lowest of the low in the culture, shepherds. No royal birth, no social status, no formal education, 30 years working with his hands in a carpenter shop, no connection with the elite, educationally or religiously. He was just a sucker branch, that's all we saw. Another way to say it is, he was like a root out of parched ground. What's, what's a root out of parched ground? Obvious. A root sticking up in dry earth, not planted, not cultivated, not watered, not tended, useless unimpressive, no value, cut it off so somebody doesn't trip over it. It was like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He gained nothing from his family origin, nothing from his social station. None of his followers were educated, none of them were brilliant, none of them were mighty, none of them were powerful, none of them were influential. They were a ragtag bunch, predominantly fishermen, as many as seven of them. No position, no money, no achievement, no nothing. He was a sucker branch. He was a root sticking up out of the ground. The sucker branch should be torn off and the root should be cut off so somebody doesn't fall over it. 
He was nothing. That's how we saw him. Not only a contemptible origin, but a contemptible appearance. Look at verse 2 again. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And they were still into appearance like they were when they chose Saul back in 1 Samuel. Nothing royal about Jesus, nothing regal about Jesus. He was absolutely nothing. And though he displayed divine power, wisdom, truth, grace, and holiness, they saw no royal dignity in him. He was just a commoner. And then to make it worse, there was contemptible suffering in his life. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's still how they feel. They don't need a Savior. But they certainly don't need Jesus as that Savior. Instead of seeing Jesus suffering, instead of seeing Jesus' rejection as the culmination of the sacrificial system that put Him on the altar as the perfect sacrifice, the necessary provision for atonement and salvation. They had only contempt and scorn for Him. They rejected Him. He was despised, like Esau, who treated his birthright with disdain. Yeshua was His name. By the way, through history, the Jews have changed it to Yeshu. That's an acrostic that means let his name be blotted out. Jesus has been called the transgressor. In Jewish literature, he is called the hanged one. He is nicknamed Ben Stada, Ben Pandera. Blasphemous names given to Jesus. Because they say the real story is the story of Yeshu ben Pandera and Miriam ben Stada, his mother, the hairdresser whose adulterous affair with Joseph ben Pandera, a Roman mercenary, produced Yeshu, who learned magical arts in Egypt and led men astray. It's all in the Talmud. Rabbis called his gospel Avon. Gilajov, the sinful writing. He was forsaken of men. Men? What, what is the word men? Not bene Adam, but benish, lords, rulers. The rulers of Israel forsook him. We, we have to follow them, persons of rank. None of the power elite were close to him. None of them supported him. None of them believed in him. The Supreme Court of Israel sentenced him to death for blasphemy. Dalich, commentator back in the 19th century, said the chief men of his nation who towered above the multitudes, the great men of this world, drew back from him. He had none of the men of distinction on his side. That's still true. The works, the power of Jesus was attributed to Satan. They said you do what you do by the power of Beelzebub. 
His followers were persecuted and martyred, all the apostles, John exiled. Christians are called apostates from Judaism. Paul identified them as such, worse than heathens. There's a daily prayer that Jews pray. May they all be suddenly destroyed without hope and be blotted out of the book of life forever. That's a Jewish prayer directed at Christians, such as the rejection. And what compounded their disdain? Verse 3, he was despised because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If he was the Messiah, he would have inflicted the suffering on the enemies of Israel. But he was a man of sorrow, sorrow of heart in all forms is the word. A man whose career, whose life was marked by suffering and pain and sorrow. He experienced grief of soul, deep sadness. You will not find in the Gospels anywhere where it says Jesus laughed. But he cried. The Jews have always been repulsed by a sad, suffering, grieving, weeping, nobody Rejected by the leaders, executed by the Romans as a blasphemer. Being their king, their Messiah, we will not have this man to reign over us. And then the fact that he died the way he died, despicable. He is the kind of person, go back to verse 3 that men hide their face from. Like in Job 30, verse 10, someone who's hideous, someone who's repugnant. Sometimes you turn your head when somebody comes because you don't want to be caught looking at them because of some deformity or disfigurement. They don't even want to look at Jesus. He's so repulsive. They refuse to assault their senses by even looking at the ugliness of Jesus. Same word is used in Daniel 11.21 for the despicable Antiochus Epiphanes. So the sum of it, the end of verse 3, we did not esteem him. That is a very benign English translation. He was absolutely nothing to us. He was non-existent. Non-existent. He didn't exist. These words are the words that the nation of Israel collectively will one day confess. This is the Jewish confession of the hatred, scorn, and rejection of the Messiah, Jesus, in the future when they turn to Him and are saved. This is what they will say. And this is what any Jew now says when that individual Jew comes to Christ. We've been wrong. We thought He was nothing. This is the broken-hearted confession 
of the worst sin possible with the most devastating results. The rejection of the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the sad news is Jews have lived and died and continued this rejection. The good news is one day in the future they will make the right confession. It will come to them and they will say, oh, look at verse 4. It was our griefs he was bearing. It was our sorrows he was carrying. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That confession has to be made by any person who comes to Christ. We'll pick it up from here on Wednesday. Father, we are so grateful for the glory of Scripture, the immense richness, profound reality, deep, divine, comprehensible complexity. We even thank you for the tiniest details of how you even arranged the book of Isaiah which speaks to us of the order and the perfection of your mind and it all focuses down to a few verses in this chapter and meaning at the heart of the gospel, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our peace, substitutionary, vicarious, atoning sacrifice for us. We thank you for the grace that awakened our dead hearts, blinded minds to the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to awaken sinners so that the gospel will not be foolishness, so that the gospel will not be rejected. We pray that you will bring many from Israel to faith in Christ, that you will expand the preaching of the gospel and its effectiveness in that nation even now and to Jewish people around the world. Continue to build your church made of Jew and Gentile with the middle wall broken down. But Lord, we ultimately pray for the future salvation of that nation. May it be soon. And with John we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Bring history to its glorious culmination. Return to startle the world with your majesty and your glory. In the meantime, may we be faithful to serve you with all our hearts. In the name of Christ we ask, amen.